Hello, I'm Father Scott Vanderveer, and this is Profiles of Endurance. All of us, as we're growing up, try to figure out what it is that would be best for us to do with our lives. Some of us depend on guidance counselors or career fairs. Some of us just want to find out what jobs make the most income and follow that path. But for many of us, we find ourselves waiting to receive instructions. Others, without ever having invited guidance to come into their lives, find that there is a, a calling of sorts bubbling up inside of them. We're here to talk with someone today who is following a calling. Danny Epting is a 24-year-old writer who lives here in the Albany area, and she and I have known each other since I was her middle school religion teacher at St. Pius School in Loudonville, New York. Her life has taken many twists and turns since then, and I have gone from knowing her as a sixth grade student to now a professional writer and a prosperous and productive member of the educational and artistic community here in our area. I'm here to talk with her today about what it feels like to receive promptings, to know what you are meant to do with your life, and then to follow them. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Danny here with us now. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And let's start by just finding out a little more about you and about your growing up years and about your family. Yes, thank you so much for having me here. Um, so I grew up here in Albany and I went to St. Pius for elementary and middle school. And that's where we met. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, my family consists of me, my parents. I do have a half sister as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after St. Pius, I went to Catholic high and, um, yeah, and then I did St. Rose for my undergrad and U Albany for my graduate degree. What did you pursue at St. Rose? St. Rose, so I started in education um, and then quickly switched to English and creative writing. <laughs> and what what led to that switch? So I was in an education course um, and we were doing, it was like a geometry education course. And I was learning how to teach geometry to kids. And I was sitting there and I was like, oh, no, 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 this is not for me. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So um, that same semester, my advisor had recommended that I take a creative writing course. I, like, needed to fill three more credits or something. And I was like, sure, like, I have to do it. And I was in that course and the professor was so cool. She had us doing all these exercises and things and, and the one day she pulled me aside after we wrote this we had to do a fiction story and she said you know you should consider doing this more like even if you just write by yourself I think you know you have something here oh. and and I was like oh <laughs> and so it just started to kind of come together and she was telling me about other courses um that were available for writers but I could only take them if I was you know an English and writing major so I switched like the next week and I never looked back. <laughs> wow. What did it feel like to, uh, to move away from what you thought you wanted to do? Was there fear involved in that? Yeah, it was definitely tricky because I had, you know, believed that was, I was going to be a teacher and I had told 
friends and family that I was, you know, going for education. And in my first semester, I was switching already. Yeah. Um, but I think that happens a lot in life. We think we're going to do one thing and then other opportunities or talents we didn't know we had come along and we, we switch our path. It's, it's, it is very, very true. And I think that is, it's amazing that that, that professor who you, you met by chance, that was like a yeah. class that you weren't intending to take, <laughs> recognized this in you. Did it echo anything that earlier teachers had noticed in you? Did your high school teachers or middle school teachers notice your writing ability? So, yeah, when I was at Catholic High, um, I was taking a theology class, and my theology teacher, we used to do, like, reflections every week, and we have to write, like, what we were thinking, our connection to God that week, and she had said to me, you know, you have talent for writing, and she was like, do you write on your own? And I was like, no, not really, and that, after my professor had said to me, you know, writing is something you should try, even if you just do it on your own, whatever, um, I remembered that as well because it was something that she had mentioned to me. So, yeah. You know what it reminds me of? I, I obviously became a priest about eight years ago, and mm-hmm. I had thought about it for 20 years before actually doing it. Wow. One of the things I've learned, and, and, and that um, they make an effort to teach priests, is when you are talking to young people, and you... Yeah think that one of them might have a call to religious life as a sister, a brother, a priest, you really need to understand, they say, that they need to hear it from three, they need to hear, I think you'd be good at this, from three different unrelated people before it really sticks. Isn't that interesting? So now I'm wondering, does that jog any memories for you of other people who said something to you? Or were you just attentive to this? Like, so your theology teacher said, I don't know if you're doing this on your own, but you've got a talent Mm -hmm. for this. And then at St. Rose, does it, uh, does it make you feel like maybe you were, you were open to that kind of guidance? Or do you think that it was probably coming from other places too, that you just can't quite remember? That's a great question. I mean, I I think I definitely was open to it as well. I can remember being younger and having so many journals. And I remember Mm. being in like third grade and there was like a girl that was very mean to me. And so I I would write about it. And and my mom was really big on that too. She said, you know, write your feelings. It's a great way to track just your progress and how you're feeling day to day. Mm. And I wrote this like entire little book in my journal about a girl who like, overcame bullies and whatever so I I always remember like just writing when I was younger and so I don't know I guess just as I got older more people said stuff and and that was the first professor who said that to me and then once I did switch there were other professors who would say things as well so there was definitely more than two people along the line oh that's very cool that's very cool you know what a therapist once said to me that uh you don't even need if, you, if you're using writing as a way to get emotions out of you, you don't mm-hmm. even need to say it because there's something, ma- or save it is what I meant to say, because there's, mm-hmm. something, there's something magical about the connection between the mind, the heart, and the, and the writing hand. It really draws the poison out of us to write about what is hard. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that happens with writing. We kind of our subconscious um, mm. and that's what I like so much about it but whether you're doing like nonfiction or fiction writing I've seen that so many times 
even when I'm writing my short stories, you'll kind of, you want the, you as the writer kind of learn something as well because you're accessing this different part of your brain that you don't normally use, you know, and you're, and you're learning things about you that you don't realize maybe bother you or you don't realize maybe you needed to work on. And mm. so writing is so therapeutic in that way. Mm-mm-mm. It's so true. That's been true for me as well. And then there's the added decision of, am I going to save this? If it's, if it's something about my life, is it something I want to save or is it something that it has served me and it can go? And I, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. Dorothy Day, who's um, on the road to sainthood right now, the, the longtime founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. And one of the things that she said was that writing and keeping a journal always helped her build her faith because she found that if she wrote about her problems and then would wait a little while, if she'd look back to the problems of six months or a year ago, most of them resolved without her having to do anything about it. And it Mm -hmm. filled her with a sense that God was good. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting. You know, that's a, it's another added benefit. So talk to, talk to us about how your decision came about to go to grad school in this, in this field as well. What, what, what was happening when you were finishing up your undergrad? So it's actually very interesting how this came about because I, um, I was applying to MFA programs, so Masters of Fine Arts of Writing specifically, and I, they're very competitive, they're hard to get into, and I was accepted into Sarah Lawrence College um, mm. in, near the city, and um, I went for one semester and it was not for me. And that was, again, a trying time. And I was like, wow, mm. I got accepted here. I told all these people, and I don't like it. I mm. don't feel like it's for me. I moved there. I had an apartment. It was... So, yeah, so that was tough. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I knew that I still wanted to write. I knew that was, you know, foundational. That wasn't changing. But where I was was not for me, Um and so I transferred to U Albany, and um, so I was there for the fall semester in Sarah Lawrence, and then I came back and went to U Albany for the spring semester. And um, how did that you ended up being? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, well, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I, I actually probably should let you finish, but I wanted to ask: How did you know that it wasn't the entire? program that was wrong for you and not just the place. When someone feels that it's not a good fit, I feel like there's always that temptation to, to panic and to say this, obviously I'm not supposed to do this, mm-hmm. but you had to parse out what about this isn't right. How did you figure out that it was Sarah Lawrence and not this pursuit that was wrong? It's kind of, it was kind of almost a gut feeling because it wasn't even so much that I didn't like the program. It just felt wrong to me. I was also missing my family and it was just a totally different experience for me being, even though, you know, the city's not extremely far from Albany, but it was a totally different culture there. And it just felt wrong in my gut. I was trying to get into my classes and I, and I just couldn't, I didn't, feel right there. Um, I learned so much. I learned a lot while I was there, but it just felt, I didn't feel like myself. And I was kind of spiraling as well. I was spiraling down and mentally I wasn't feeling healthy and it just wasn't good. Um, and almost instantly when I came home, things were better, you know, mentally and just physically, I felt more like myself. Um, and I ended up 
learning a great deal at um, UAlbany in their program and their fiction courses that we have. And that's where I started putting together um, a manuscript as well mm. of short stories that I wrote. And there was a professor there who helped me with that specifically and said, you know, you need to, st-. he didn't even like ask. He basically said, you need to start submitting this. And I was like, okay. And I started submitting a short story collection that he had helped me put together for publication. And that's what my book is that's coming out next month. So it all sort of happened for a reason, because if that hadn't happened, I would never have met that professor. I would never have had those classes that helped me put that manuscript together. I love that story. I love that story. And it, and it, oh man, Uh, (laughs) I, you know, it also reminds me that, uh, it's, it's so important when we recognize someone having a special ability or talent to name it with them and to be in, be very clear. Um, mm-hmm. Because, right, that encouragement really, that catapulted you in a big way. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have done it. I was like, no, like, these aren't good. And he was like, no, like, you need to submit these. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Danny, help so. me understand. This is one of those moments where sometimes you can't believe that someone can do something because it's so different than what you're able to do. Mm-hmm. How, what part of your mind creates fiction stories? I, I think it's a fascinating to, to, to talk to somebody who has an imagination that can produce stories with intricate plots that draw others in. It's like you're sharing a fantasy world with us and drawing us in. Where does that come from? So I think a lot of my fiction stories are rooted in experiences or emotions I've had. Mm. Um, I, I try to, you know, people who say, like, fiction is all fake, I don't I don't believe that. Even, like, um, extreme fantasy and, and alternate universes that people create, even that is grounded in human emotions and, and characteristics of real people. So even there's some truth in that. But I, I always say that my fiction stories are like 30% truth and 70% fiction that I've made up in my head. Um, mm. But I always I always start with that, with an emotion or with something that's happened. And then sometimes I'll just have an idea that I'll get stuck on um, or like a specific character. And then I'll just sort of build a world around that. Um, mm. And when I'm, when I'm writing, it's all very subconscious. And sometimes I'll, you know, you kind of write something and then you're like, where did that come from? And it all, oh. it all comes from within you somewhere. But yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to explain, I guess. <laughs> what is yeah. your relationship to the characters that you create? Um, I think in a way, I mean, writing in a way is, is very selfish because you are writing a lot about yourself and your emotions. And I think that, there's a piece of me in all of the characters. Mm. Um, but I think I try to use the characters to be as realistic as possible. I'll, I'll give them, I carry around little notebooks with me and I mm. use the notes in my phone all the time to, to write down like real things that people say or do or little characteristics that they have. And I'll use them in my stories to, to bring them to life because I want readers to, to see them and be like, wow, that's an actual person. Um, mm. and my, my stories are more so realist stories, so the events and, and things that happen to people in them could happen to anyone. 
And that's what I think makes them more relatable because we all go through things and the things we go through aren't necessarily always talked about. Mm. So fascinating, fascinating. (laughs) So what, what kind of writing is most satisfying for you as a writer? I mean, fiction, of course, but I think a lot of my stories are not happy stories, and I've had people mention that to me before, Ah. but um, I think that's because life is hard, you know? Life is difficult, and people don't really want to read happy stories, you know? They want to read a story about someone who goes through something and, and learns something from it, because it's in those times when we really need comfort, and we need to know that we're not the only one dealing with it. Mm. Um, and so I think fiction is useful in that way because you can connect with the characters based on whatever is happening in your life. And, um, I mean, sometimes it's great to read a story and be like, oh, yeah, a happy ending. But other times you want to read something and know, like, that's, that's real life. That's what, what happens, you know? Absolutely. So I think that's the most satisfying. And, you know, every, every great religious tradition the Christian and all the others always are rooted in the, in the suffering that's part of life. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross and Buddha says life is suffering, you know? So no matter what, it's really true. It's, and and, yeah. And the, just the honesty of that. I would also say that I have read writing when I'm reading the writing of someone who I think really is connecting with me. I feel less alone. I feel like I know them. Mm-hmm. It would be hard for me to not speak with them with familiarity if I met them because I, right. you know, these, these people who live far away to <laughs> me have, they, they know my heart. And so I feel yeah. like I know theirs. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything, and this might be a hard question to answer, so feel free to pass on it, but is there sure. anything that you learned about writing and or about life in your program at UAlbany that maybe wouldn't be something that, that those who choose a different path would get to learn. I'm just, I'm fascinated by even the fact that you take classes on fiction, which means that there is a methodology out there. There's a pedagogy for helping people to learn this craft that I think to those of us who haven't been part of it, we don't understand what that process would be like. So I guess that if I'm trying to get at this, the heart of this question, it is, what is it that you learned in that program that the rest of us might find fascinating because we're not learning it in our other walks of life? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we definitely studied fiction and, and studied good stories as if it was like we were studying, you know, science or chemistry. We, we would spend time, we would get assignments where we had to like outline stories and figure out like what made the story work which I thought was so interesting because before going into that major I never would have thought that like writers did that I always thought like oh well what makes a good writer is like they have a good story but that's not that's not it you know Mm. you can have a story but that doesn't mean like you're going to know how to write it um and so I, I definitely learned how to write within those classes and something else I learned too just about writing in general is that some writers are gardeners and some are architects so oh. some will like, yeah some will like plant a seed of a story and then watch it grow kind of through their subconscious they don't really know how it's going to happen or where it's going to grow and others are architects they know exactly what they're going to say and how the story is going to go before they even like put their pen to the paper mm. um, 
And they don't make a value judgment, which is better. Your the the writing community doesn't value one over the other. No, no, because it, it just depends on how the story unfolds that that makes it whether it's good or not, you know. And and most of the times you can't really tell which one the author is when you read the story, you know, because you, <laughs> you you don't know their process. Right. So, right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, which are you? I'm definitely a gardener. Wow. <laughs> I just watch it happen. Oh, that's yeah. so exciting. That's so exciting. I Wow. So talk to us about what a good day of writing is like for you. Can you take us? I, 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 I would imagine that no two days are exactly the same, but I could be wrong. <laughs> what are What is a good day of writing like for you? Um, yeah, so for, for my job now, I, I write a lot during the day. Um, so most of my personal writing happens at night, and it kind of did anyway so it's okay <laughs> I'll mm. usually start like after dinner and it'll be like six o'clock and then suddenly it'll be like eight and then ten <laughs> wow then like so I don't do it every night of course but that's when I feel I have something to write um and then of course I do like on the weekends too but I never force it that's another thing that maybe people won't agree certain writers agree and disagree with this but I don't force writing um I think there's like a big and we talked about this last time I saw you too there's a big difference in my opinion between like writer's block and knowing when you have something to say Mm. um so like if I feel I have something that I want to write about but I just can't get it out that's definitely writer's block in action Mm. but um there's times when I'll go months and I won't like look at my computer or put my pen to paper and there's a great essayist, nonfiction essayist, Joanne Beard, who says, you know, she goes years sometimes. Mm. She was married to a man once and she didn't write for like years at a time. But I think it's during those times that we kind of get material to write. We have to live to, to be able to, to write something of value to other people. Oh, so. how true. How true. So it's not wasted time. It's, it's your gathering. You're in the forest foraging. Right. You're studying. You are studying. I love that. I love that. In a way. Do do you often find yourself in a flow that takes over? Yeah. I think that's what keeps me up a lot of times. Sometimes when I'm really in it, and I love those moments because it just feels like you're in like an alternate universe in your subconscious. You just start really getting into it. And those are the moments when suddenly I'll have a story and it's like, who just wrote that? You know, that's what makes me a gardener, I guess, because it, it kind of, and I think that's where, where God really plays in too, because this is a talent he's given me that sometimes I feel completely unaware of. Like, I feel like he's in control of it, writing for me almost. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it reminds me of something I heard that I found fascinating, the concept of genius, that it's a Greek concept. And that we modern Westerners have changed the concept from what it was. We now often refer to somebody who's a really good writer, for example, mm-hmm. as a writing genius. We'll mm-hmm. say, oh, that their, their, their work is brilliant. She's a genius. Yeah. And, and what they say, what I heard is, that's not the Greek way of thinking of it. In the Greek sense, you, don't, you are not a genius. You have a genius almost like a spirit that is given you or a gift or or a possession of a good spirit. Yeah. You're possessed by a good spirit. And so they say, 
that one of the things you have is a relationship with with your genius that was given you by God. It's not yours. It's not you. It's a gift. Yeah. And and so I don't you saying that strikes me as a confirmation of of the truth of that. Yeah. That it yeah, it's a gift you have, not a thing you are. Exactly. Exactly. That's one hundred percent what it feels like. It feels like an, an other to me. Oh, so does that mean that you're writing? Does a piece of writing ever catch you by surprise? Do you ever feel like you're in some commercial for some kind of like, I don't know, um, healthcare item for things that are urgent where you're like at dinner and all of a sudden a a story hits you and you're like, check, please. Sorry, I'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) Sometimes it's, it's strange because with fiction, you can put yourself in so many other shoes than your own and it's I I've been talking about this story to some of my friends and family often because it's such a strange story I've written lately it's called banana split Mm. and it's about this this wife who has been buying bananas for her husband for years and suddenly he stops eating the bananas and she's having like a breakdown about it she's like why aren't you eating the bananas anymore and Mm. it's it's like it's the start of the end of their relationship but the story goes through all sorts of, you know, loops and twists and turns. And then, you know, the husband gets sick and all this stuff. But I'm writing from this, mm. she's like a 60-year-old woman. And I'm writing from her perspective. And some people have read it and they're like, how are you writing? You know, it sounds like you've been married for 30 years. And it's strange because I've never, you know, been married. And it's, it's, it's kind of this, like, it takes over <sighs> my mind. And I feel like I'm writing as this, this woman. So... Oh my goodness, I love it. I love it. That's fascinating. Now tell me, has your family, was it hard for them to buy in to you doing this? There is something about writing that that many of us associate with starvation. (laughs) I still do some days. (laughs) It feels like a lot of things in the arts where it is so risky. How did your family respond to you pursuing something so based in in this um, the need the need to have a relationship with a genius rather than you know a really nice safety net like a lot of people have going to work for a corporation? Yeah, I, when I first I remember the only time that my parents ever questioned it was when I first switched my major and they were like, "Are you sure?" And I was like, "Yep." And they were like, "Okay." And they're so supportive with I feel so blessed and lucky to have them because they they support me in anything I do and and I've made you know countless mistakes in my life and they've like watched it and let me do it and then been there when it's over you know they've been like okay like we learned and now next you know Mm -hmm. so I feel very lucky to have to have them and my friends they're they read all my stuff and it's I I love that because you know not everything I produce is good (laughs) so they'll read all the good and the bad stuff um which is awesome. But when it comes to like jobs and, and stability in that sense, sometimes I do think I'm like, wow, maybe I should have gone to school for like a specific degree, like maybe physical therapy or social mm. work where I would know what job I'm going to have. Because sometimes it's, it's, I'm not sure, you know, you get an English degree and then it's like, okay, good luck. Like figure out what you're going to do for your job. Mm. Um, and writing doesn't, doesn't necessarily make a lot of money. Um, so yeah, but it, it sort of feels like that's just what I need to do. It's what makes me happy. It's what I feel like, feel inside. And so, you know, we we don't make it out of this 
life alive. So we <laughs> so don't why would I waste make my it. Time? Oh, I yeah. love that line. We're not going to make it out of this life alive. So you got to live. True. Oh it's my! True. And I, I think a lot of our daily lives we spend ignoring that fact, and I think we do have to ignore it to a degree just to function in daily life. But it's important to kind of keep it maybe in like the third or fourth layer of our mind, so that our actions reflect what we really want and and how we want our life to go because at the end of the day like it's just us it's just it's gonna be us at the end so oh yeah just love it love it love it (laughs) so so many things i want to ask but let me go to this topic it sounds clearly like this is a calling in your life this is not a decision that you made you had to decide to follow it, but, but it's not a decision that you made after like looking at pros and cons of careers and going to a career day. This is a calling. How does a calling feel different to you following it than a career? Yes. So, I mean, just money wise, (laughs) I don't think I'll be living off of my short stories, you know, unless I become some famous author, which I don't know about that. But, um, Mm. so in in that sense, you know, um, but it, like I've mentioned it, it makes me feel better. It's, it's like therapy for me. I I feel like people who read it can gain something from it. It feels like a a genius is working through me. Mm. Um, so it, it just feels like something that I have to do. Um, and a career, I think, I think you can like your career. People can like what they do for a living. Um, and if you're lucky, whatever your calling is, you can make a career out of your calling. So. Yeah. You, you sharing that reminds me of something the writer Elizabeth Gilbert said. And I, I just I really appreciate her writing and I really appreciate her wisdom. And she said that she had to make a decision that she would support her writing she spoke to her writing like it was a genius that she had to take care of, that was living with her, and that she was privileged to be able to host. And what she said to her writing, she said, was, I will take, I will support you. I don't expect you to support me. Isn't that I like interesting? That. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to work. And so she said in the beginning, she worked as a waitress to, yeah. so that she could support her writing. She didn't demand being successful so that her writing could support her. <gasps> What a what a thing That's to really say. Nice. Yeah, I thought so too. Now yeah. let me ask you this. I am I am living a calling as well and I enjoy yes, telling people <laughs> I enjoy telling people something that they uh, are sometimes shocked by and I've never said it on the podcast but I can certainly go into more about it sometime in a conversation with you personally or with the listeners mm-hmm. at some point but there's a sure. lot of things about being a priest that I do not like. <laughs> there's a lot of things. <laughs> That would not be my choice. And yeah. and yet, I am called to it. So I'll right. tell you, I was asked um, not too long ago to talk to a bunch of high school students about what it was like to be a priest. And I realized that it might be an opportunity to reflect on calling. And so I got together with a couple other friends who are in um, life, life paths that are callings. And we brainstormed this list of things that were true for us about a calling. And I'd like to just get your reaction to it. There's eight things here. And maybe one of them will stand out because it's especially true for you. Or maybe you'll say that's not true in my case. But here is what, for the career day, we brainstormed. Number one, a calling meaningfully affects other people's lives. It, it It's a meaningful path. Number Absolutely. two... <laughs> 
it causes you to be seen differently by others. When they find out that's what you do, they go, oh. (laughs) On some level. Number three, gives you access to parts of other people's lives that are usually off limits. Number four, involves restrictions to your freedom. You have to live a little differently than you might. Number five, contains parts that you don't like but cannot avoid. Number six, you can justify in your calling without guilt at times, letting your work take priority above other things. If it's a calling, for example, many people who are married with children who have a calling, mm-hmm. sometimes their kids and their spouse have to take a back seat and it's understood. It's because of the calling. Right. Number uh, seven, the people in your life intersect with your work, whether they know it or not, and whether or not you're aware of it. And number eight, you would do it without pay if you had to. Are any of those standing out to you either because they're especially true or because they're especially not fitting for you? I just took notes, so I'm just rereading. Oh, so Danny! I would definitely say, I mean, yeah, I have done and would continue to write without pay for the rest of my life. Wow. Um, so absolutely. Um, the, the fact that you are seen different. I've had a couple of my short stories get published in magazines and I get nervous because some of the, I have had a couple nonfiction and, you know, several fiction. And sometimes, especially with the nonfiction stories, I'm like, oh gosh, mm. who's going to read it, you know? But it's like, it feels like what I'm saying in the story is going to help other people. And I want to put it out there. I want, you know, that human experience to be able to be read. But you worry a little bit about what people are going to say and how it's going to be taken, you mm. know? Um, and then the access to off limits part of people that stuck out for for me, for you, because I mean, I'm sure as a priest, people are, are more willing to share their lives with you. Yeah. I'm sure that's, yeah. It's very, you know, what's funny for me is a lot of people think because it is a celibate path that it's a lonely path. And I find it's quite the opposite that people share so intimately with me that I feel so connected to people, right. yeah, it's it's a remarkably it's remarkably intimate. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I found myself thinking too, you have access to parts of other people's lives off limits in the a lot of it's imaginationally. Like the fact that you understand on some level what it's like to be married for thirty years, though you're not. You know, there's right. like you have you're able to express things yeah. that in your imagination you have access in a way that, yeah, that often Often others don't. Um, yeah. I I wondered about the restrictions to your freedom. You know, one thing I think a lot of our listeners probably <laughs> noticed that I noticed is, uh, yeah, my day job is writing and then my passion is writing. <laughs> and I just remember when I was a teacher, when I was a teacher, there was one there was one ministry at church I would never, ever do. And that was faith formation, depending on what our listeners know it as. Faith formation, Sunday school, mm-hmm. religious ed, CCD. I was like, like heck, I'm going to stand in front of a, a classroom full of students on my day off. Like this is, so I'm noticing how that's powerful. You are writing yeah. during the day 
And we'll talk in a minute about that day job because I find that fascinating as well. But then your passion, often there are days where you take a break for dinner and then you start your your real calling in your in your vocational life, which is to write, maybe till like midnight. Yeah. <laughs> what is that like to to uh that to me feels like a great restriction to your freedom. You are your genius sometimes say, you might be saying, I'm going out tonight and your genius goes, No, you're not, you're putting your butt back in the chair. Yeah, I've definitely that I've come across that before where I, I have plans or whatever and then I'll start a story and I'm like, I do not have plans, you know? <laughs> so it, it all depends on how intense like the story or the idea I have is. Um a lot of times when I have an idea it'll be like an obsession for a couple days. So, so luckily enough, I can like get it done within a few days and then I'll put it away for like a week or two and then pull it back out to like edit it and, and, you know, change it around and do whatever. So I would say it does restrict my freedom, but then again, I mean, I, I would, I like doing that. So it doesn't feel like a job, you know, it feels like I would, I like being up till 12 at my top and at my computer and writing something that is meaningful to me and hopefully to people who will read it. I love it. I love oh, to hear to hear you speak with that kind of enthusiasm is so exciting. Um, all right, let me give you an example for me of my next question. I there are parts of my calling that I do not like, and one of the very clear ones for me is mm-hmm. being told where to live. I yeah. really struggle with that. I do not yeah. like of all the places. If I were given a choice of where to live, there's almost certainly one that I would not live in, and that would be the house next to work, or above, in my case, above work. Like I said, I'm in an apartment above one of the offices. And now I love my house, and for those who are parishioners at St. Mary's in Kuksaki, thank you for providing me this wonderful rectory to live in, and I love it. But, right, I really wish I could move it. Like, one town away, and, you know, to have, like, a nice little fence around the yard so I could grill. I can't grill in the backyard. People will be like, oh, my gosh, look, father's grilling. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, pointing and taking photos of you grilling. Totally. Oh, my gosh. And the kids are like, father's not wearing his robes. Well, no, because I'm grilling. So I don't always wear my robes. (laughs) I'm making a hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw father standing up without robes on. So I guess what I'm thinking is... Though that's a part of the priesthood that I wish could be taken away, but is part mm-hmm. of the job. Yeah. What is a part of writing that you really wish weren't part of it, but it goes with it? Ooh. It's a hard question. It is. What's a What's a downside? What's the hardest part of this calling for you? Um, hmm. I would say which this is kind of ironic because it's part of the reason that I do it. I would say just kind of what I mentioned before, like not knowing the reaction that it's going to get. Like it's, Um. it's when you write something and you feel great and you're like, Oh my gosh, like I think this is good, but then you still don't know. Like you don't know how it's going to be taken. Everyone sees things differently. And so you could have just spent two weeks, like every night trying to perfect this story, trying to have it be good and still not know. And I think that goes, hand in hand too when you start submitting stories a lot of journals and publishers take anywhere from three months to a year to get back to you and so that's a frustrating aspect too like you just sit there and wait and and maybe it's so maybe what I'm trying to get at here is like the judgment part of writing Mm. you know you can you can think inside that it's good but you just you're going to be judged outwardly regardless so 
Yeah, isn't that true? Is and that there's such vulnerability to creating creation, and because what you're creating is so personal and so connected and so right, it's a that's that's powerful. That's powerful. So now talk to us a little bit about your writing during the day. You you do something really interesting, and as soon as I found out what work you did, I was filled with questions. Talk yes. to us about what you do during the day. It's very strange. I never, <laughs> I never like even. I, I had no idea that this was a profession or an actual thing until I applied um, a while back and you know started working in this area. But um, I so I work for two ghostwriting agencies. Um, I work part time at both, so equals full time. Mm. Um, so I do for one. I'm a part time nonfiction writer, and for the other, I am an editor, and I edit what the ghost writers write. So I edit their manuscripts. Wow! Wow! Yes, very different. <laughs> for some people, this whole term ghost writing is brand new. Can you talk to yeah. us about what a ghost writer is? So a ghost writer literally writes books um for other people sometimes ghostwriters can do like blogs and things like that too but uh the two agencies i specifically work for it's books so wow. i'm writing um non-fiction books for other people which i think is interesting because so for the for the one agency i'm doing non-fiction and the other i'm editing fiction manuscripts and in my personal writing i write mostly fiction mm. but overall i think i'm doing Fiction, because even though I'm a nonfiction writer, and I know this is confusing, even though I'm a nonfiction ghostwriter, it's still fiction to me. You know what I mean? That I'm makes sense for other your people's stories. <laughs> Fascinating. So now, a lot of us, a lot of the listeners right now, I'm I'm suspecting are having their heads spin because they're like, yes. "Who would write a book but not actually write it?" Who writes right. a book but has someone else who doesn't yeah. get the credit? So let's yeah. back up a minute. I'll tell you, you can tell me if I'm right about this. Here's what I suspect is a typical client of the agencies you work for. Every once in a while, a politician who is currently in office and has a really big job will, will like, where you know they're just like working, you know, 16 hour days. And all of a sudden, they've got a new memoir out. And you're like, wait a minute. How in the world, when did that politician or that public figure, or, you know, maybe it's a, it's a famous journalist and they're like, yeah. you know, they're working there. You see them on the morning news and then you see them contributing to a nighttime news magazine and you know that they have a family and now they just wrote a book and you're like, wait right. just a minute. Yeah. Am I on, am I onto something oh, here? Do those yeah. people have ghost writers often? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every time you see like, well, you don't want to put down every celebrity or politician, but most of the times when you see very busy, very famous, successful, you know, politicians, celebrities, singers putting out like a sudden book, like you just said, it's by a ghostwriter, by a professional ghostwriter. Wow. Um, so that's, that's what I, I do. You, you know, the one agency is um, based out of London and the other is out of California. So a lot of the clients for the one are like more famous people in, in London, the London area, but a lot of them are like higher profile clients. So obviously confidentiality is like a huge thing. Right. Um, right. But, but I'm writing all, all sorts of stuff. It's really interesting. I, I like it. Um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of people don't think it's a good thing because it's like, why would, you know, somebody else 
write a book for you and you take the credit for it. Um, but I think sometimes people have a story. Like, even those politicians and those celebrities, they all have a story. They have a life that they've lived. They've been through struggles just like all of us. And they may not have the time or even the skill in some, some scenarios. Some people have stories and just don't know how to write them. Right. And that's what ghostwriters do. So, and I'm, I am happy to do that for people. I think it's, it's interesting. I'm writing, um, a book on marriage and how to deal with conflicts in marriage. Wow. Um, I'm writing a, this woman's autobiography right now. We have like zoom meetings that we do and I, and I write it in first person for her. So it's, it's different, but I, I like it. It's, it's like writing fiction. You know, I'm writing other people's stories. Amazing. Um, and I think you just, I mean, for anybody who did feel uncomfortable with the concept, you just explained it in a way that's very compassionate. I mean, it's exactly, I, you Right. I mean, I, all of us experience limitations. And yet, if your limitation is in storytelling, that's a really unfair one because our lives are made up of stories. Right. So like, I'm a, I'm a terrible basketball player, but I don't need someone to go play for me. I can live a fine life without it, but I can't live a life without stories and without sharing. Right. Exactly. So how do you adopt, how do you adopt the voice of the author? What do you do? Um, yeah, so I, we can like talk to the clients. We have like um, software where we where we can communicate with them directly. But it's interesting because it keeps their like identity like safe. Um, and then sometimes they don't really care, and they'll just tell us like who they are. And then we do zooms. We'll talk on the phone or do video chats. And they'll, they'll some of them are very specific. They'll send outlines or paragraphs of what they want. Um, and then others are kind of more broad. They'll tell me what what they want the book to be on, and then and then I'll create an outline. And they approve it or deny it. Um, and then we go from there. And they, they get to, you know, check in, of course, as I'm writing. Um, they do, like, 25% check-ins, 75% check-ins. And then they approve the final the final manuscript. So, Do you ever get starstruck? <laughs> no. Not really. <laughs> no, not really. Because uh, they're just, like, normal people, so it's okay. There was one really cool person who I was writing a book for in London. And I was like like someone that I knew who it was and I was like wow I did not see this coming so I was like so careful with her manuscript and it was oh really that's cool, to talk cool. To her. and that's... her identity was like accidentally released to me because we did like a little zoom thing and you know your name's on there oh and right so my and my name was on there and I was like well now we both you know and she was fine with it it, it wasn't a big deal but, um, you yeah, have so such an interesting job. You have such an interesting <laughs> job. I'm glad someone thinks so. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, oh my goodness. I love it. Oh man. <laughs> and of course, both of us are in the same boat because I hear some awesome, awesomely fascinating confessions that I can't talk to you about. Oh, I'm sure you do. And you have these amazing experiences with really interesting clients and you can't talk. It's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> There again, you know, I'm just going to add another thing to calling. Gives you access to parts of other people's lives usually off limits. Hello. That's very true. Isn't it so interesting? Wow. It is. And this, this type of work too, you know, it's, it's obviously very different than like a nine to five type of job where it's like, because you never know what you're going to get. Like I never know what the next book is or what's going to happen or if they're going to like what I wrote. It's, it's very uncertain as is like just the entire writing experience but um i i do like it because it has a lot of flexibility both both agencies kind of go off the notion like all right like you have 
this is the deadline for 30,000 words, write whenever you want, and just have it by then, you know? So I don't have to do, like, a set time during the day. So, like, certain days I will literally work from, like, 8 o'clock till 8 at night, and then I won't work at all the next day. Oh, so I, wow. I can kind of set my hours, which I like a lot, too, because it gives me time to write on my own or live my life or do whatever I want to do. Love so, it. I love it. Yeah. What's your relationship... I think a lot of something our listeners, many, many personality types are thinking right now is, oh my goodness, I would tank at this because I am a procrastinator. You know, how do you meet, what's your relationship like with deadlines when you, when you tell us that there's a meeting, let's say there's a meeting with someone who is a famous, you know, celebrity or politician (laughs) and they need to have their 25% done meeting with you and you're only 15% done. Yeah, I mean, so when it comes to deadlines, I, I, I'm looking at my planner right now that my dog has chewed in half, but oh. um, <laughs> I always keep my deadlines, you know, in, in there, and I keep track, and I always, I like trick myself, I'll put the deadline for the day before, so uh. that I'm like, okay, like, and then, so that if I forget, because I often have like, you know, several books I'm working on at once, so that way I'll be like, oh, well, that's due this day, and then that way, in case... I like mess up or forget about it. I actually have one more day. So I trick myself and I'm like, that way that never happens. I never miss deadlines. I just, I just don't, I haven't yet. I mean, I don't want to say never, but I haven't yet. I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed. But that also, it does also put a little bit of tension into a value that you have, which is don't write until you have something to say. You know, that's a really interesting thing because there are those writers and I think a lot of people who've Mm -hmm. heard writers speak or have heard a TED talk from a writer, you might hear folks saying things like, oh, it's all about getting to the first draft and keeping your butt in the chair. Write the first hundred words or something. There it is. There it is. Mm -hmm. Wow. Fascinating. So there's a tension there. There is a tension, but Mm -hmm. you make it work. Yeah. Because, I mean, especially with these projects, they're, they're handing me what to do you know they're giving me the idea up front so in that sense it is like a reason to start writing so yeah yeah fascinating 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 i have a question about aspiring writers i'm sure that everybody who hears this who knows someone you know their their uh their sister's um son's friend who has told everybody now that he's a junior in high school that he wants to be a writer when he grows up they're going to forward this conversation to him what do you want to say to everybody who wants to be a writer what advice now that you you are doing it you have had this calling and you followed it and you're and you're doing it in a big way you're doing it as a day job and you're doing it as a vocation and you are you're committing to it you're sacrificing for it what advice would you give and or what cautions would you give to someone who says, that sounds great, sign me up? Yes, I would say live a little bit first. I think a lot of my like better writing came after I had some not so great life experiences, you know, and then and then I started really producing stuff that people want to read. Mm. Um, and it's not not like drama stuff, but but fiction like coherent fiction stories where a lesson is learned at the end I always say 
um, whenever I have people read my stories before I submit them, I'm like, did you get that oomph feeling at the end? That like, oomph when you read the last sentence? And that's like, that's like my goal for every story. But when I think back to when I first started writing, I cringe at some of the old stuff I read. And I'm sure, you know, 10 years from now, I'll look back at the stuff I'm writing now and cringe. But I think it's important to have some experience because when I first started out, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm a good writer. I can write whatever. And like, no, I could not. (laughs) I could not. Um, But it's it's funny because like, that's what you have to do in order to to write anything of substance. You have to write like a million terrible things. And like you have to write a million terrible first drafts before that story is good. Mm -hmm. So I think just anyone who's starting out has to expect to like, get rejection and write terrible stuff before you write anything good i guess oh it yeah it's so wise it's so wise and i hope that though everyone who's out there understands that that uh failure is not a sign that you are on the wrong path necessarily it may just be you're in drafting you're drafting right now you're drafting your life no (laughs) i love it What a great conversation. Before I let you go, just a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody who joins us here, because I think these are some big questions that a lot of people ask. And the the topic of this is endurance, enduring through your your calling, enduring when there's setbacks. And it all came about when we started this pandemic. So one of the questions that, that often arises when we think about endurance is about why we have to face what we face. And some people say that the way you can face life is just trusting that every single thing happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's just, it all happens for a reason, so just trust. But other people say the exact opposite, just as, just as fervently. They say nothing happens for a reason, it just happens, but, but we're, we've got God's help to respond to it however we want. So, mm-hmm. so they're both valid ways of looking at the world. Everything happens for a reason, so just trust, or nothing happens for a reason, and just do the next right thing. Where do you stand in that? Does everything happen for a reason, do you think? I think both of those um, ideas are correct in a sense. I do believe that things happen for a reason overall, but Mm. I think also we can, you know, trust God and choose how we're going to react to the things that are happening according to his path. I do believe that even the negative things that happen in our life, we might not see it right away, but like years down the road or even longer than that, we're going to be like, that's why that happened. You know, with some of the stuff I've shared, even just like with school and, and with going to the city and then going to UAlbany, like if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have got where I am today. So there's so many examples, you know, if you go back and, and track stuff in anyone's life, there's so many examples of things that just simply wouldn't have happened without something else happening first. Um, so yeah, I am a strong believer in, in things happening for a reason mm. and, and trusting in God. Um, for sure. I think, I think that's, it's powerful to let go of control. For oh, sure. Is it absolutely? Uh, yeah. I, I love that. It, how powerful it is. People think that surrender is a sign of weakness, but surrender is powerful. Yes. Absolutely. Surrender is powerful. Oh man. You have, you are in your young adulthood, but you have had a lot of life experiences and and you've shared very generously with us about some of the twists and turns that have happened even in the in the educational part of your life. What what for you has been the key to enduring the twists and turns of life so far? What you know, it's a virtue that is uh 
it's a challenge and, and a lot, there's a lot of metaphors for it. People think about life being a race or a journey, a marathon, not a sprint for you. What is, what has been the, the key so far for you in, in the, the virtue of endurance? Um, I mean, I kind of gave it away a little, but trusting in God is something that I have only recently really been trying to do more so, you know, Mm. there's been times in my life when I was really close to God and times when I was far away from him and not, not long ago, probably a year, year and a half or so, I was really far, I felt far from him. And so in the past year or so, I've been trying to trust in him. You know, when I have issues, I, I give it up to him and I think that is, 100% 100% how to endure because while, while you physically here in, you know, earth and in your own life are trying to go through something, he's up there making good things happen. Um, and I think that's what makes our relationship with Jesus so special too, is that he was here. So he knows what it's like. He carried his own cross and now we're carrying ours. Mm. So part of endurance is understanding that like, this is endurance is what we have to do in this life like everyone has to do it it's just part of it and um there's a there's a psalm psalm 55 and it's it's literally about trusting god and about even though you have all these obstacles in your way like he's got a plan or like everything happens for a reason you know so i read that every day and it's kind of like my version of starting the day off like i give it up to you whatever happens today is in your plan Oh, I love it. I'm going to look up Psalm 55 because I it's don't so have good. it memorized. Oh, that's so good to hear. Psalm 51 is is about creating a clean heart in me, Lord. I've sinned. I've sinned. We, do, we in the church who do the Liturgy of the Hours, we do that one every Friday morning. But Psalm 55 sounds like a winner. I'm going to check that out. Wow. For sure. <laughs> Last question for you is about the times we're in. Uh, we are, we're turning a corner, it feels of sorts in our, in our journey through the pandemic. It feels like a lot more people are getting vaccinated a lot more. We're getting a better handle on things, but it certainly has been a long journey and it's impossible for us to have gone through something so momentous without having it change us in some way. Yeah. What are your best hopes for what life can be like as we, as we move beyond coronavirus when it stops being the headline every day? What are your hopes for for what life can be like? I think um, it definitely shook people a lot because we never thought something like this could happen, mm. um, and definitely weren't expected weren't expecting it to happen now. I mean, mm. you're never really expecting that kind of thing to happen. But I think a lot of people felt very isolated and lonely, and had to come together in ways that you know we didn't even think were possible. People were using Zoom, we're calling each other more, and I don't think. Um, like life will ever go back to what the normal was before. I think we'll always be a little more cautious when it comes to germs and going out and things like that. But hopefully people will learn to just be kinder to each other and to be a little more understanding because everyone has things going on that um, we can't see. And COVID was an issue that we all had that we could see. Mm. So hopefully we'll have a little more understanding just for human life in general. Oh, what a great, what a great hope. I love it. I love it. I love it. Tell me, before we conclude, where can our listeners find your writing? DanielleEpting.com. Danielle, <laughs> we will put this in the, in the notes too, in the description. 
DanielleEpting.com. That is so exciting. I am so excited to spend time with your writing. And uh, I'm so, so delighted by your presence with us. Before we go, I'd love for you to just linger with us for a moment. Because one of the things we like to do is just savor these conversations for a moment. So I'd like to invite our listeners to just take a moment and just settle in to the, uh, the sense of this. When, when Danny was a student in my religion classes, we used to do these things called guided meditations. And this is a little bit, it's a little bit of, that, of that nature. I'd like to ask you to consider who came to mind in your life when Danny shared with us about the advisor who told her, no, you really need to listen. You have a talent for this. This is, this is a direction I need you to consider. Or the other who said, you really need to get these published. Who are those people in your life who have been guiding forces, who have been mentors? Can you take a moment and just feel grateful that God put those people in your life? Can you consider with us for a moment those times that you've had to change course when you pursued something that didn't feel right, when you recognized that the the plans that you told everybody about with great excitement now needed to change and that you might have a little bit of egg on your face. How can we be gentle with one another as we allow our life path to take whatever form God wants it to? When we heard about the difference between gardeners and architects in writing, what would you say is true for you about your life? Are you approaching your life like a garden or like a house being built? There's no right or wrong to that. Which one fits better for you and why? One of the things that we heard was that it's wise for us to recognize we don't make it out of life alive. What are you doing to make sure that this one wild, precious life of yours really matters? Danielle Epting, we are so grateful for your presence with us here today. We're so grateful that you're following your calling and that it gets to enrich our lives, both through reflecting on what you've shared and also by encountering your writing, which is something we all can't wait to do. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's so great. And thank you to all of our listeners. Peace be with you all.